Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB. And I'm joined in the studio today by LARB Editor-at-Large, Kate Wolf, and LARB's Managing Editor, Mede Ocher. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Eric. Hello. Hi, Eric. Today we're speaking with Rebecca Mackay about her novel, The Great Believers. This was another one of those novels that listeners will not be surprised to hear that I just sobbed through the last couple of parts, particularly this one moment where one of the characters is realizing that they are close to death and is petting this cat and realizes that it may be the last time that he ever pets a furry animal. And for... Reasons that, like, because of my own deep attachment to my cat, Yuki, like, I definitely just started wailing. Yeah, I was thinking about your cat, Yuki, as you were (laughs) talking about that, because that seems like a perfectly reasonable um, connection. Did you cry during, while you read this book? I did not cry, though it was, so the book is about the AIDS crisis in Mm -hmm. Chicago in the late 80s, 90s. And then the Um, aftermath of that in 2015, I think, yeah. And uh, no, though I was very, I was very moved. You know, I, I'm not sure that I've ever cried from a book. What? Wait a minute. What about Pachinko? Nope. You didn't actually cry. I didn't. Oh. Hmm. Yeah. So, so it isn't. It, that's not to say that um, it isn't a really moving book. <laughs> it's just you, just you'll never a, get you a, have a problem. You'll, yeah. it's just you'll never get a tear a out of Medeo. <laughs> have you ever cried ever in your life? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I definitely have cried. Are you an easy crier is the question. I am sort of an easy crier. Wait, do you cry know. reading books? Do you cry at movies? No, she thinks she's never cried at a book. Oh, no, I oh. don't think I've ever cried at a book. That's really interesting. I have cried at movies plenty. What I movie? sometimes cry at commercials. I cry an airplane a lot. No, you know what? Actually, now that I think about it, there's one book that made me cry recently. It's not that recent, but it was Lincoln and the Bardo. Oh, Saunders. I haven't read that. I haven't read <laughs> By George Saunders. You know, I haven't read that, but everybody does say that it's quite moving. I was in an airplane. It was very moving, but I and but I think the altitude was also sort of wearing me down. I find it actually easier to cry in airplanes, though also yeah. it makes me feel way more ashamed because like you're in public in a particular right. way, but also it's people that you don't know at all. Wait, you know, now that I think about it, I also cried at Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. It's coming so I, back to you. You probably yes. cried at other books. But. It seems I'm like I'm crying all the time, actually. She's not as heartless as she seems, no. everyone. thank God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, should we talk to Rebecca? Yeah, let's do it. We're excited to be joined today by novelist and short story writer Rebecca Mackay. Rebecca is the author of The Borrower, The Hundred-Year House, and Music for Wartime. Her latest novel, The Great Believers, tells the story of a group of gay men and Fiona, their straight female friend and caretaker, from the AIDS crisis in Chicago to contemporary Paris. It was published in June by Viking Press. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Okay, so can you just briefly describe, it's a a quite complicated plot, but can you just give our readers a general gloss, our listeners? Yeah, So our main character in the 80s is a guy named Yale Tishman, who is the development director for a small art gallery at Northwestern University. And the novel starts with the funeral of his first close friend to die of AIDS and follows him for the next seven years as his life both falls apart and takes on much greater meaning. And meanwhile, every other chapter is 30 years later. We're in 2015 Paris 
where a woman named Fiona, who was the sister of the guy who died at the beginning, whose funeral that was, she's traveled to Paris to track down her estranged daughter who's disappeared into a cult. And while she's there, she is staying with and encountering um, a few of the survivors from back in the day. And because of that and because of her own crisis, is finally having to come to terms with everything that happened 30 years back and all the things she hasn't dealt with yet emotionally. That's a great summary, actually. Thank you so much. So how did you end up deciding to use a 30-year lag in the plot? Was that a immediate choice or did you work on the novel and then decide that you needed that uh, time break or how did you come to that yeah. telling the story from that perspective? Yeah, it was the latter. I had written about 150 pages in with the story just being about Yale and just set in the 80s and I was really feeling the limitations of that. It really it was frustrating me that we could only know what he knew in the moment and couldn't get the long view on things. And I I saw that that was going to be problematic as we continued. And the other issue for me was actually that I really did have a lot of trepidation surrounding the issues of appropriation versus allyship in writing this. And as I was writing only about Yale, even though it was third person, uh, it felt a little too much to me like I was trying to go in and borrow stories that I wasn't there for that really happened to real people, um, even though this is a fictionalized version. So the the decision to include those 2015 Fiona chapters was born out of both of those problems. Um, I wanted to broaden the novel so it wasn't just Yale's perspective. Um, I wanted someone in there, maybe a little bit more like me, you know, make it a, a big novel about many things. And I'd been looking anyway for a way to, you know, maybe take us forward in time. Originally, I'd played with the idea of ending it much later, you know, letting there be an epilogue years later. But I um, I started experimenting with those, inserting those chapters for Fiona and, and, of course, had to go back and edit the hell out of everything else then to make it fit. And that's when the book really started to work for me. Hmm. You know, there's, there are often some moments where things click and you know that you're going in the right direction. And that that was a moment like that for me. It's interesting to hear you say that because on the one hand, I'm deeply sensitive to the concerns about appropriation that you talk about there. But on the other hand, you actually end up giving us a story that we don't tend to get in AIDS novels um, or novels about the AIDS crisis which are the stories of female caretakers who are also a very big part of these networks. And normally we kind of get just the experience of the men who suffered and died from the disease and the lovers that were left behind. So I'm wondering if that also gave you a different purchase on kind of the, for lack of a better word, like a a broader scope of that crisis and that moment in history and the types of lives that it touched and affected. Oh, absolutely. And it was a perspective that I was encountering already in my research. A lot of my research was first person sitting down and having conversations with people. And quite a few of the people I talked to were female caretakers, activists, nurses. And I was encountering those people even when I didn't intend to. There were so many times where I was maybe speaking to, for instance, a library group, and someone always says, what are you working on now? And at first I wasn't saying anything, but eventually kind of gave the one sentence description of the book and would have these people 
you know, almost every time a couple of women running up to me afterwards and saying, oh my God, I was there. One woman had this whole story for me about, you know, having been a nurse in the early days when no one knew what was going on and um, having stuck herself with a needle and just the, the hell she went through in the weeks after that. Other people, you know, saying, you know, I was in the dance community in New York in the 80s and, and you know, the things they'd seen. And then some of those people I was, I was really seeking out. A lot of those women actually were queer. Um, and that's one frustration of mine that I, I think I, I represent that in the book. There is um, a character named Gloria who's a minor character who um, is a lesbian and does end up in a caretaker role. But it's not that I wish I'd made Fiona a lesbian. If she's not, I wanted to represent her too. But I just wish I'd gotten more of that in there um, because I think there was so much amazing stuff going on between two communities that hadn't always gotten along, to be honest, when, when AIDS hit. And, yeah, it, it's something I think that allowed me to deal more directly with some of what became the themes of my book, you know, survivor's guilt and what it means to have sort of squelched your own emotions for the sake of taking care of other people for very long periods of time. So I actually, I wanted to ask you about the kind of research that you did for the book. And, and part of that question is, I think, how you came originally to this subject at all. I mean, I think reading it until I got to your note, I had assumed that you did have personal experience with it, that I, I felt the mourning and the grieving so intimately in Fiona that it, it felt potentially yours. <laughs> well, obviously, that's mm. like a mistake and an illusion that we make between authors and their characters all the time. But what brought you to the subject and what did what was the research like? What was it like to approach essentially survivors, right, of um, something that in the book is yeah. compared to a war and talk to those people and sort of be given the task of handling this story? Yeah, those questions are related because um, the fact that I did not lose anyone close to me to AIDS and was a kid in the 80s means that this really was a research-based book for me. I, you know, I was born in 1978, and on the one hand, that means, you know, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't hanging out in Boys Town, I wasn't going to the bars, you know, it was really funny, actually, sometimes as I was interviewing people who knew me very well, you know, but they'd talk about something, and they'd be like, well, do you remember Cheeks, that one bar, and I'm like, I was seven, dude, <laughs> like, well, let me remind you who you're talking to, and they're like, oh, yeah, 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 I forgot, but um, no, my, my parents were not taking me to hang out <laughs> the, uh, Cheeks in the gay bars and stuff like that. No, I, um, I think so. Um, I, this is something I've, I've been talking about and thinking about a lot. I think that people who are right around exactly my age have a really interesting relationship to the AIDS crisis in that you're born, you know, late seventies and this is a TV centric generation. You know, I, I watched way more TV than my kids do. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was everywhere. And we didn't have that filter of having lived through things before or of going, oh, that's happening to those people over there. It doesn't affect me. We had just this raw, unfiltered kind of childhood view of it that I think was probably more direct than a lot of adults 
outside relationship to it. In particular, I know I, I stayed home sometimes. Someday I was homesick from school and watched some Donahue episode. Um, I must have been, you know, eight or nine that I'd forgotten all about until I came across it again in my research and rewatched it on YouTube and went, oh my God. So, I was that this. Donahue interview just curious? Is it oh, with ACT it? UP? Um, it was. It was um, right after the action at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York, and it's Peter Staley and Larry Kramer and a bunch of ACT UP people really passionately explaining their cause on stage and then taking the most ignorant questions from the audience. And, you know, it, I, didn't, I didn't quite, you know, I was watching it going, did I see this? It's so familiar. Did I see this? And finally, this one woman in the audience asks just this horribly, horribly insensitive question about putting people on an island, literally. Oh and God. I went, oh, my gosh, I watched that. And at the age of, oh, I can't remember what year this, what year it ended up being, but, you know, the age of nine or ten, you know, as, as a kid, I'm looking at that knowing how absolutely wrong and awful that is because I didn't have a lifetime of practice of otherizing people or of, um, you know, justifying why that wouldn't happen to me and, and becoming numb to it. Um, you know, we were kids, and so it seemed like the most important thing that had ever happened in the history of the world. And maybe not the history of the world, but it'd be hard to argue that, but I still feel like it's, you know, one of the, it's certainly one of the most important things that happened in the, in the 20th century, and it's shocking to me how little we talk about it. So given that that was my experience, I didn't have direct experience. I have many gay friends now, but of course they tend to be closer to my own age. Um, I have some friends who are HIV positive, but they're, this is the 21st century version of HIV positive. I really did need to launch into a ton of research, and it's specifically about Chicago, because almost everything out there is about New York or San Francisco, maybe about L.A., but a lot of Chicago-specific research. But to, to go back to the very beginning, you'd ask me how I started writing this, and um, <laughs> it, it actually started in a totally different place. I, there's this um, kind of subplot within the book about this woman um, who had been an artist's model in 1920s Paris. She's in the book because um, Yale, as the development director for this gallery, is acquiring some sketches that she has. And the book started out about her. Um, it was really about this woman and about maybe this friendship she was going to have with this art guy. And I said it in the 80s because um, I wanted her to have been in Paris in the 20s, and I figured that was as long as she could have lived. Yeah, um, so sense. then I had this book set in the 80s and this art world guy, and I was like, well, maybe AIDS will be this subplot. And partly my research just really took me much deeper into that. I, I really felt that it was urgent to write about. Partly it was just where the gravity of the story was for me. And then also it really started to bother me that so much of not everything, but so much of what is out there in fiction and in film about AIDS is a subplot. It's so often a subplot, and someone dies dramatically, romantically offstage. And I felt like I didn't want to do that. There are some brilliant books that fit that description. It's nothing against them individually, but collectively, I'm going, you know, what's the deal here? I'd like to write something that actually looks directly at it. So what, what books were important to you in your research? And um, I'm also wondering... Watching AIDS on television when you're young is one thing, but as you go into the story, it's such a different... The The point is not this terrible disease, but it's also, and I think you addressed this in the book, the way it was handled, that it's a 
insane crisis that could have been averted, but because of prejudice, the government let an epidemic just get completely out of control. So I'm wondering how your view of the AIDS epidemic changed with your research. Oh, for sure. I, as a child, I had no sense of the politics of it, obviously, or maybe not obviously, but, you know, it wasn't something that my parents tended to talk about. So I wasn't aware of what was going on politically as much. I became aware of that long before I wrote this book, um, you know, in terms of, you know, Reagan's um, ignoring the problem and the kind of right-wing politicians and um, religious people out there saying, um, you know, some really horrible things. So I knew that stuff, but I didn't know the nitty-gritty details of things like the way that insurance companies handled AZT or the, you know, the fight for anti-discriminatory housing laws going on at the same time in Chicago. So um, there was a lot that I learned on the detail level that I'd had a sense of that came since childhood, um, but that I didn't have the details on. And it's funny, I'm someone who in real life, I can't handle anything to do with insurance that, that I has always fallen to my husband or whoever else will help me out with that. I can't, I don't want to know anything about it. I don't like it. I don't understand it. But I got really into the details of 1980s HIV AIDS related health insurance. Um, I had this one resource who was a lawyer um, who was helping me out on it. And the, the hoops you would have to jump through to prove um, disability and the ways that hospitals could, you know, reject you and, and all these different things. It became just absolutely fascinating to me. Um, I had to, you know, be really selective with what I included in the book so it didn't turn into 30 pages about health insurance. But I have notebooks and notebooks filled with things that I'll never use that, that hopefully are being written about elsewhere. You also asked what books were important to me. And I'll say that I tried very hard to avoid fiction about AIDS as I was writing, partly because I wanted sort of an unfiltered view of things. I didn't want someone else's artistic spin, but also because if you're reading fiction and you find a detail that you love, you can't use it because that would be plagiarism. Whereas if you're reading nonfiction and you find a detail, you're welcome to use that because you're taking it from the real world. Can you give us an example of of a detail that you found that you just wanted to use? Oh, sure. Well, I'll give you an example of one I did use. Yeah. Um, so the you know very well-known nonfiction, early nonfiction book about AIDS would be um, And the Band Played On by Randy Schultz. And I think there were several things from that book, but there's one, there was one image in there that I just put directly into my first chapter, which was, um, and I'm sorry, this is sort of gruesome, but um, someone in a hospital having a sort of seizure and, and foam coming out of his mouth and nose. And I just, I found that so disturbing and so contrary to the, like I said, sort of romanticized filmic representations we tend to get of AIDS. I think in film, it's someone always collapses dramatically in public and then they're whisked away. And then we find out they're dead because someone goes to visit them and their hospital bed is now empty, you know, and it's like, no, 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 let's, let's show the bodily fluids. Let's show what's actually happening. And so that, yeah, that was a detail that I was able to kind of lift out of there because it was from the real world rather than from someone else's artistic vision. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. 
recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Rebecca Mackay, author of The Great Believers. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Jenny Zhang, author of Sour Heart at the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books, and Jenny is here to give us a book recommendation. Jenny, what book are you going to recommend? I would like to recommend Tommy Pico's book, it's called Junk. It's the third in um, his trilogy of poetry books. The first is called IRL. Um, the second is called Nature Poem. And um, Junk completes the trilogy. And I just think Tommy is the best poet working. He's the best poet of, the, of our generation. He's just amazing. Wow. Um, he is this really amazing indigenous queer poet who is basically writing these odes to junk but he what kind um, of junk all of it emotional detritus and physical crap that we like put on our mantelpiece um, instead of actually that we prize and carry around with us so it's 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 literally about junk but it's also like it's it's kind of like one long song Um, and uh, I'm really not doing justice to the poem because when I the it's a book length poem because when I really like things I become really inarticulate and I can only say how I feel about it that's enough. it's just incredible yeah how I feel, do you feel incred- I feel speechless when I read it because I think he's just so good um so I think everyone should get it it's out from Tin House May 8th I think that's a perfect way to recommend a book actually Jenny will you tell us the name of the book again and the author Tommy Pico and the book is called Junk thank you so much that was Jenny Zhang author of Sour Heart You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Rebecca Mackay, author of The Great Believers. It occurs to me also that one of the things that you're talking about when you're pairing interviews with survivors as well as historical accounts is that a central concern of the novel is who holds history. Right. Who is there's a a moment at the end um, that I found particularly powerful where one person is talking about how, you know, uh, in Hamlet, they everybody wants Mm -hmm. to play Hamlet. um, But that this person also saw the horror of playing somebody like Horatio, where Hamlet gets to pursue truth, be noble and then die. And Horatio is the one that's left with the burden of memory. Um, So how did you confront the both the kind of tropes that we have about talking about AIDS and the AIDS crisis, both in fiction and film, but also in nonfiction, and the the history that you're trying to capture? I mean, it's, 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 it's just tricky because I'm thinking about it always on two levels. I'm thinking about it in terms of how am I thematically treating that question in my book, and then how am I participating in that question as an author? And you know, in terms of the first one, I mean, I think you gave a really good example of, of one of the ways that I'm dealing with it, that conversation. Um, also, just my interest in this spread of time, these characters who are left in 2015 with their 
scrapbooks and their photographs and, you know, memories of an entire generation that's gone, it, you know, beyond just the survivor's guilt is that burden of carrying memory, sometimes being, you know, the only one to remember huge numbers of people or, or, you know, certain moments for huge numbers of people. At the same time, I'm thinking about that constantly as an author and, and in these interviews, sitting down with people, on the one hand, really felt that burden that they were carrying as they were, you know, talking about memories. And something someone said to me once, was so interesting, was he was talking about a friend and he said, you know, if he'd lived, we would have probably drifted apart. We wouldn't be that close. He'd be just someone I knew in my 20s. But because I was one of the people there when he died, I'm... He didn't say have to, but the idea was, you know, he, he was in the position of needing on so many levels to devote the rest of his life to this guy's memory, you know, to talking about him as someone who had a big, uh, this friend had a sort of a big public presence. Um, so, you know, talking about him at memorials and being the person to answer questions about him in interviews and, um, you know, telling stories about him. And I think, you know, he also saw, this person also saw that as a huge honor, but, you know, it's an honor, I think, that as time goes on, you wonder if you deserve, right? It's like, we weren't, you know, we weren't that close. <laughs> you know, why me? And I also was just completely touched as I was talking to people by times when I would ask them things and they would start an answer by going, gosh, I haven't thought about this in 25 years, but, and, and, you know, I was very worried at first about what I was dredging up for people, um, but that never turned into a negative experience, even, you know, sometimes it got very emotional. But in one case, there was even someone who, you know, he, he was writing to me after we talked with some additional memories, and then he wrote to me about six months afterwards and said, you know, I thought of some more stuff if you want to meet again. And the problem was I was in my final copy of it, so I had to say, I, I just, I, <laughs> you know, I can't use it right now, but I yeah. want to, you know, catch up with you socially. And he wrote back and said, gosh, this is making me think I should really write some of this down myself, which made me so happy because absolutely people should be doing that if that's the right thing for them, if they have that in them. And, you know, and, and then at the same time, too, um, I'm sorry, I'm going in, in seven different directions with this answer, but, <laughs> but also it's so alarming to me how little has been written about Chicago. And, Certainly, yeah. And, you know, That's another major thing that I think the novel does, and which was jarring at first to be like, wait a minute, why are we not in New York? Why are we not in Paris or right. San Francisco or Los Angeles? Right. That's it. You know, and it's and it's not just Chicago. You know, every city has its own idiosyncratic story about how it hit that community and how that community dealt with it and memories that should be being recorded. And it really alarmed me when I was, you know, talking sometimes to people who were fairly central to the AIDS response in Chicago or the crisis and, and asking them a question and them saying, gosh, no one's ever asked me that before. And I'm thinking, you know, if you were the equivalent person in San Francisco, there would have been five documentaries about you by now. Right. Uh, how has nobody asked you this question? But, you know, other cities, and it, this is stuff that I couldn't get into the book, but Milwaukee, I don't know if you know what happened in Milwaukee, but... Um, what happened? In Oh, my God. So in... 19, I think I have this right, it's 1992, I could have a year off by a year or two, but there was a cryptosporidium outbreak in the water, and it killed just this huge swath of people living with HIV within a week. Because is, I assume this is a bacteria that was in the water. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was, it was a bacteria that, you know, it's going to affect people, you know, the very elderly 
and people with compromised immunity. And there were, you know, dozens of deaths, which at the time it was just kind of reported in this general way. And you look back and it's like, oh my gosh, most of those people were the people living with HIV. Um, and, you know, far enough in that there was some decent medication, they might have survived. Um, but all at once. And there was someone that I was interviewing who he, we were sitting in the sort of corner booth of a restaurant and he brought a scrapbook with him and he opened it up. And this is a moment that I, I wrote into the book actually in a very different context, this, what happened next, but he opened it up and all of these funeral bulletins fell out all over the place. And then we sat there together just trying to sort them out into chronological order and as we do, he's telling me all these stories about all these people. And this is someone with a, who had a Milwaukee connection, even though he was in Chicago. And there were, you know, eight or ten all from the same week in Milwaukee. And it was just, I, I was staggered by this. Um, that I didn't write into my book. I just, the, the idea of the funeral bulletins falling out of a, of a scrapbook I wrote in. Because my, like, I don't, I don't have room to talk about Milwaukee. It's, you know, it's a totally different thing. But, you know, I think some of the people who are best equipped to write down what happened and to, to do the histories are the people who are least ready to do that emotionally. Well, the, um, the, actually, the question about emotions is something that I did want to ask you about because I think that one of the things the novel really succeeds at is navigating in a very human way the complex emotional terrain of both that moment and its aftermath. So, for example, um, you have a lot of emotions that are present but which necess- can't necessarily be played out um, you know, feelings of guilt, betrayal, profound loss, yeah. um, but then also a kind of helpless love, right? A, a classic mm-hmm. example is um, Yale and Charlie um, and mm-hmm. how it's like you are, you feel betrayed, you feel angry, you feel scared, but yet you're also confronted with the potential loss of somebody that you're in love with. So how right. did you get your purchase on that kind of very textured emotional landscape? Yeah, I mean, I think so much of that is, you know, that's that's where you get into, it's really not research. I mean, sometimes someone says something that sparks something for you, but that's really just that, you know, I think what we're really supposed to be doing as fiction writers, that working really hard to put yourself into someone's shoes and figure out what it would be like. And you know, certain characters and their emotions were easier for me to jump into than others. But, you know, you have to, it's interesting, just, I only have two point of view characters. We only ever know what's going on in Yale's head or in Fiona's head. But even so, you have to know what emotions are going on for every other character too, in order to figure out how they're going to act. So you have to, you know, really get around behind the head of, of every single person in there. And I think that's just, you know, one of those kind of requisite skills for writing good fiction is the ability to do that, to put yourself in in someone's head, even if they're being a complete jerk, for instance, and to, you know, when you're, you know, to believe that every character is right, you know, that's that's a hard thing. Um, Everyone in an argument is right. You have to see that in order to compellingly write their point of view, that what they're going to say, how they're going to argue. But no, I think you're right that there's there are incredibly complicated emotions and there's a lot of suppression of emotion because of the circumstances where, you know, you mentioned that sort of, you know, you feel betrayal and you want to, you know, murder someone, but this is someone who's just found out that they're ill. 
also things about wanting in some cases to find causality for this illness to figure out, you know, why some people are getting it, why others aren't, why you and not me, I'll be safe if only X or whatever. But and in that way, time, like a meaning or logic to it, right? Which it fundamentally right, doesn't have. Right. But then not letting yourself do that because that's what the Republicans are doing. Yeah. And, that, you know, like, can't do that. That's That's nothing but blame and guilt and you know, what do you think God gave it to you? Or do you think, you know, what, like, you know, let's not buy into that. So suppressing any thoughts like that, and then maybe them coming out in really destructive ways. Um, so it was a lot of fascinating psychology to work with. I was also fascinated. Um, the, I, I picked the year 1985 a little bit at random first, just to, I'm going to kind of, you know, research and see what was going on in 85 and found that it was the perfect year to start because it was the year that the test came out um, for what we would later call HIV. That was HTLV3 at the time. And um, that, the appearance of that test really helped me figure out my characters emotionally because they all have a different response to it. Um, to whether they want to get tested, whether they do get tested, why, why not, what they're afraid of. Um, and some of that, you know, it was really interesting to me. One, one of the ways I researched also was I holed up in a library and I read every back issue of the Windy City Times, which is Chicago's, one of Chicago's main gay weeklies from 1985 to 1992. Um, it was a really interesting reading adventure, but, um, the editorials and the letters to the editor and um, all that stuff going on through late 85 and, and into 86 as um, the, the major health clinic started offering them for the first time, things keep happening with it, really let me in on some in-the-moment psychology. You know, not what people are going to say to me now looking back, now that we know that the test was accurate and now that we know that those results wouldn't be subpoenaed in some way. You know, people's perspectives have changed and, you know, more likely to look back and go, yeah, of course everyone should have gotten tested. But to see the in-the-moment reactions that the, you know, kind of this incredible, I was going to say litmus test, but maybe Rorschach test is the better term because it's like you can see in this test whatever you're going to see. That sort of gave me an emotional landscape, a psychological landscape that I was then able to work from for many different characters and with many different situations, right. not just the test. And in your treatment of this complicated emotional terrain, I don't know how, if, if you do a kind of method thing where you pull upon experiences from your own life, but I think people are often drawn to specific tragedies because there's some personal, um, I don't know, some mirroring yeah. of something they've gone through. So in such a great loss um, like AIDS, I, I wonder... Were you able to pull on personal experiences of loss? Um, sure. No, absolutely. One thing that was really, I'm, I'm not going to say interesting, that's the wrong word. One thing that happened, and I've certainly experienced loss in many different ways in my life. You know, I'm not going to give you the whole list, but, you know, I've, um, you know, I've lived a life. But I was in the middle of writing... I was still, it was still just Yale's story, but I was, I was, you know, maybe a third of the way into it. Um, and I was at Yada, the artist residency in upstate New York, and I was sort of snowed in there. And very suddenly, my father-in-law passed away. 
and he's someone I was tremendously fond of and um, just, you know, was a wonderful grandfather to my grand to my children and, you know, just a wonderful man. And this was very sudden. It was very unexpected. And I was snowed in and I could not get to the airport in Albany, let alone get home. Feet of snow on the ground and icicles barring in the windows. And um, so it, it, I'm there for, I can't remember, two or three more days writing. And there was basically nothing I could do with that except, you know, write it into the story. Um, and there's a moment, uh, I'm not giving, I don't think I'm giving, this is a spoiler, but it's not too big of a spoiler because you kind of know it's happening from the beginning. There's a character named Terrence who um, is ill and, and dies not at the moment that you're going to expect him to die. Um, and I basically, it was me, you know, I woke up to this news spent the morning on the um, phone with the airlines, realized that there was nothing I could do anyway, went up to my studio and uh, wrote Terrence's death into the book where I had not expected it to come necessarily yet. Um, and um, just, you know, felt like, you know, what, I'm going to make this unexpected. I'm going to make this just sudden and senseless. And, you know, so that, that's a, um, you know, maybe not a, the kind of origin story that is going to explain a whole, you know, a whole book, but it's certainly, you know, it's, it's a, maybe a small example of, of, you know, um, using stuff. It's, um, you know, I think regardless of whether you've lived through something yourself, I think they're just, you know, as a writer, and I would say for actors as well, very true. You just need to be kind of porous in terms of, absorbing and understanding the emotions of people around you and what they're going through so that it's as if it were your lived experience and you can rely on that later and you you end up knowing about more than hopefully your own lived experience. It's interesting that you mentioned porousness because one of the other things that I had noticed about the book is that it's also, I mean, as much as it's about this, this crisis and this illness, it's also very much about motherhood. Mm. And... Uh, you know, if I wanted to be provocative, I might say it's it's more about motherhood than many other of the of the subjects that it touches on, partly because so much of what it seems like many of the characters in the book grapple with is um caretaking, of course, right. but also this the sort of reverse motherhood role that Fiona has to play over and over again, you know, where she ushers people out of the world rather than into the world. Right. And then her daughter, who hates her for this, right? Because yeah. in some ways, Fiona hates her for making her do the reverse of what she'd done, which is ushering a new, a new person into the world. She just doesn't know how to do it. But so much of it is about the failures of motherhood and how people replace that, you know, and, and work on sort of mm-hmm. fixing the failures that they've been dealt like we we were all dealt with the failures of our parents, right? But I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, was I mean again? This maybe is maybe that's too personal. But if this constant sort of investigation of what motherhood is, how motherhood fails, where motherhood steps in, was something that you were thinking about? Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, this is really the first thing I've written about motherhood or parenthood at all. I feel like I'm always, I was always, I'm always writing something about like one step behind of like what I'm, what's actually going on in my life where when I was married, but with no kids, I wrote a novel about a single woman and then I had kids, 
but I wrote a novel about people who were just married. <laughs> um, and now I've, I finally caught up, um, actually went ahead of myself because my kids are young. Now I have, I have two children, they're 10 and 7, and, you know, they're, they're lovely children and we don't have the necessarily the, you know, fraught relationship. Um, I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> every, every relationship is fraught and there's, you know, um, no, no one, no one's a perfect mother and no one's a perfect child and et cetera, but it's something that certainly, you know, I, I do think about and, you know, have, I'm at a stage in my life where I have, you know, most of my close friends have children, some of them quite a bit older than my children, you know, people with teenagers and, and kids going off to college and, dealing with things that are just not what you ever planned on dealing with, you know, with, with a child in helping them and talking to them. And, and then you start to worry about, you know, your own parenting, your own kids. And, um, you start to imagine what, you know, the worst case scenario, what can go wrong. And, um, you know, your kid throws a, you know, temper tantrum about their lunch and your mind goes to, oh my gosh, is this the start of a lifelong eating disorder, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, yeah, I wanted to so, ask you, uh, do you, are there ways in which you, I mean, with kids kids so young, are there ways in which you imagine or anticipate your own failures and that you've potentially enacted <laughs> well, this in the book? already, don't worry. <laughs> I'm already failing plenty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm, you know it's, it's just, that's something that, I think every parent can look at their kid and know already what their kid is going to tell their therapist about them one day. <laughs> you know, like it's that's just a thing, right? Whether it's like they were at least they have a therapist. Never around, my mom literally or, you know. said that to me every day of my childhood. <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, you know, like I know exactly what my kids are going to tell their therapist and they're going to tell me their therapists totally different things about me actually. But, um, you know, they're, they're going to be in disagreement. Um, but it's just, it, I mean, you just go ahead knowing that. And I think that's, I, you know, I think that's true for every parent I know, at least every parent with a, um, sense of with an overactive imagination, you know, where you're going down the road of like, yeah, that's going to be the thing. I just know it. Well, um, yeah. let's end on that note. Um, uh, thank All you. All of so- our future failures. Yeah, exactly. yeah, right. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for joining us. We really enjoyed the book and hope our listeners do too. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Congratulations on a really um, big literary success. Yeah. It's wonderful. Thanks. I hope. From from your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> All right. Thank Take you. Care. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. We've been speaking with Rebecca Mackay, author of The Great Believers. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books.